This is WMPG. I'm Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about courage, the courage to talk about the subjects that are the hardest to bring up, but that we think about the most. This month's series is on the untold stories of dementia, how we live with it with our loved ones, and how we live with our own fear of getting it ourselves. This month, for the first time, we are inviting you to contact us if you have a similar story that you would like to share. We are calling this new section of the show Echoing Stories, and we'll be playing them toward the end of the series. So if you have an untold story about dementia yourself, please email me at dranne at safespaceradio.com. And that's D-R-A-N-N-E, dranne at safespaceradio.com. Today is the second in our series on dementia. Last week, I interviewed Dr. Pauline Boss about how the losses of dementia are so ambiguous it makes it hard to grieve. Today, I'm going to be speaking with psychotherapist Marushka Glisson about her mother's dementia and how their relationship has actually changed for the better since her mother's illness. Marushka is the only child of two Holocaust survivors, and we will be talking about how dementia and the resulting loss of memory may ease the burden for someone who carries terrible memories of trauma. Marushka Glisson is a social worker in private practice in Boston who practices psychotherapy with couples, families, and individuals. She uses and teaches internal family systems. She also uses hypnosis, meditation, and teaching to help others find love and compassion. She is the mother of two grown sons. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Marushka. Thank you, Anne. I'd like to start by asking you to tell me about your mom. Um, Just a little bit to kind of put her story and your story in context. Where did she grow up, and how old was she when she was impacted by the Holocaust? So my mom grew up in a place called Tarnus in Poland, She was the youngest of two sisters, and she was brought to probably some small labor camps before she was brought to Auschwitz in uh, 1944. So she was about 13 years old when she first went into the camps. And so... She survived and still was just a teenager when she went through all that. Mm-hmm. And how did she come to this country afterward? She um, met my father in a displaced persons camp where they look for any relatives who may have survived. And they got married and uh, moved to Germany for two years and came over from Germany to New York, to Ellis Island. Well, let me go back, because I, I want to understand more of this displaced persons camp. So she's, how did she get from Auschwitz to a displaced persons camp? How, how does that work? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. You know, in the past, I thought that she had been in Auschwitz for all the years that she was interned in the camps. But I found out when I went to Auschwitz last year... I found out from the number on my mother's arm that she was in Auschwitz from 44 when all the Hungarian Jews were being deported there to liberation, 45. 
So she was probably 17 when she finally got out. Had she lost her own parents and her sister? She lost her parents and she lost her sisters. She was the youngest of three children. So here she is, 17 years old. She's lost her whole family. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to find who, who she still has. Right. And it's in that context that she meets your father. Mm-hmm. And do you know the story of what drew them together? I have um, a vague recollection of my father's one surviving brother. My father was, um, had five siblings. And one brother lived, Ben, and he introduced my mom and dad somehow. And then when they met again in the displaced persons camp, they got together again. But um, for me, in my imagination, it was more of an arranged marriage and... Uh, a convenient marriage. My mother was 10 years younger than my dad. And here they were, you know, their lives were completely bombed out. And um, they were completely traumatized after, you know, living like that in such horrible conditions. And so they were attracted to one another um, for you know, survival and solace, they had been through uh, comparable, similar experiences, and they bonded that way. They bonded for that reason. And so they come to the United States, they have you, and tell me the story of how you began to learn that they were Holocaust survivors. What did they tell you about it, and how old were you when they started? Well, actually, my parents were pretty silent about uh, speaking about their experience because it was just so horrible. And when they came here at the time, they were not encouraged to tell their story. People probably didn't want to hear it, so they didn't tell me anything. Mm -hmm. And in fact, my mom has this tattoo from being in Auschwitz that I had no idea what it meant and I didn't ask her and she didn't tell me and the way I started to learn about my parents being survivors is that I went to overnight camp and they showed one of those dreadful black and white movies um, where the uh, the inmates were really and looking out the window in Auschwitz. And um, I don't know if you saw this one or not, but there's like hundreds of thousands of bodies, naked bodies being thrown into big holes. So I was about nine years old. Mm. And I just started wailing. Um, And then my whole bunk started wailing. And then I probably, from that crying, from being so moved, and then maybe the counselor telling me and telling the bunk that my parents um, were Holocaust survivors, and that's how I found out. So almost as if your body knew somehow, or you you recognized something so devastating 
I mean, do you feel you were crying? I mean, of course, crying would be the, the human response to such a devastating movie. But do you feel at some level you already knew that that must be something your parents had been exposed to? I did. I felt it. I felt it in my bones. It's like I didn't know from being told, but somehow I knew when I saw it. And when did you come to know that that's what the tattoo meant? Did your mother tell you? I started uh, going to museums. And in fact, I was in a group uh, for children of Holocaust survivors at one time. And the museum in Washington was opening up. And I went to the museum with the participants in my group and my mom, and there were a few other mothers that were in that group, too. And so I started to learn about my mom's tattoo. And So all your life, 20, until your 30. 30s, you hadn't known what that tattoo was. Right. But you'd seen it again and again. Right. What did your mother say to you about it at that point? Well, she'd sometimes refer to it. Uh, and say that she was, you know, in a concentration camp, and um, she escaped by going under a floorboard, and that protected her from marching, being marched into the showers. And she just, you know, crawled into it. It was like a little space. Did she do it many times? Well... She had to have done it a few times or found a way to disappear. Yeah. You know, I have a feeling from being in Auschwitz last year that she probably lied about her age to survive as well. And I couldn't get any records on my mother, but there was a letter that referred to my mother's sister, a middle sister, and apparently she was in the same transport from um, Poishuf, which was a labor camp near uh, Schindler's factory, to Auschwitz. But my mother never told me, even before the dementia, that she had her sister with her. I found out because I went to the archives in uh, Birkenau 1, and there was a record of my mom's sister being alive in Auschwitz. So part of what I'm sensing is that there was this huge cultural silence about talking about these things. And then that started to kind of morph into your mom's dementia, her illness, and now she can't talk about it for different reasons, which is that she doesn't really remember it as much. So you've so many of the things you're telling me are things that you've actually had to find out on your own. Yeah. So I want to come back to that, to your trip to Auschwitz. I want to really hear about it, but before we do that, I'd like to hear first about your relationship with your mom before she had dementia. And I wondered if you could tell me a story about what it was like to be her daughter, because I understand she was complicated. Well, it's interesting because my mother, during my life, would have flashbacks. So she had nightmares probably every night, and she had, uh, so for example, 
me and my mom were in a delicatessen in Philadelphia. I was probably 10 or 11, and she's being testy with me. And I'm going, what's going on with you? What's, you know, what's, what's the problem? And there are two sisters next to us eating a sandwich. And my mother looks at me kind of wistfully, and she says, I wish I had my sister to eat lunch with. And then we were going to Israel, and I was about 20 or 21, and there are these huge lines you know, trying to get into the country or go out of the country. And my mother starts flipping out, and she goes to the front of the line, and she's hysterical, and they let her in the line. And then when I ask her why she did that, she said, you know, the lines reminded her of the showers, and one line was gas, where they'd be gassed, and the other line were showers. And so she flashbacked to that. So during my life, there were things like that that happened with my mom. So that's how she told her story to me. So she told it to you, it sounds like, in moments where that were very distressing, where she was really almost reliving things, and, and you were very... Right, well, she couldn't conceal it anymore. She, she couldn't conceal it. It was so horrendous. Mm. But, you know, I would be rolling my eyes as, as a 20-year-old when I'd see her going into the line and being hysterical and people having to let her into the line. And she had some uh, eating disorders with me growing up and so on and so forth. There were, there were a lot of things. She was very angry at my father all the time. And we fought quite a bit when I was an adolescent. And when you say she had eating disorders, what do you mean by that, and, and how do you link that to, to the camps? Well, she threw up all the time. And I can't say that it was, you know, a regular garden-variety bulimia. I think it was because she had a lot of ambivalence about surviving when her family didn't. And the food thing was such a big deal because she had to steal food to survive and live. And she was so emaciated and so starved and didn't have any nutrition for a long time. So she had a love-hate thing going on with food and with eating and taking in what she needed. And that's what I make of it. Listening to you, you know, I'm struck just how profound her trauma was, how profound her losses were, how deep the effect of it were. And then I'm just aware of you, a regular American teenager, growing up and feeling appalled and embarrassed by her. Mm-hmm. And how difficult that is. I mean, I wonder for you now as a a psychotherapist and someone who, you know, at, as you said, works hard to help others find compassion. Are you able to have compassion for yourself, Marushka, for the ways that you, you know, found her impossible, even knowing now, you know, what she went through? Yes, I think I, I think I do. 
I think I really understand how hard it was for me growing up um, and how embarrassed I may feel because we moved into a community that was pretty much all American. And so I was the only person who had parents with an accent. And she would say things like, you know, she'd mean to say breath, but she'd say breast. Mm. And she'd say sentences wrong. She'd get groups wrong, groups that were popular in my day. And so it was embarrassing to have people over. Those are some of the normal teenage embarrassments, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's a sort of immigration embarrassment about like getting groups wrong. It's like that's the classic thing that appalls a teenager about their mother. Exactly. <laughs> so I want to n- now talk a little bit about how you have seen dementia begin to shift some of this. How did you first see the signs of dementia in her? I noticed that she. She went through so many different stages. She went through a stage where she hallucinated and I think was talking to my dad at one point and then after he died and then she didn't get up and walk anymore and she was soiling her pants and the hospice was called in because they didn't think that she was going to make it. And then she had an incredible healing, like she just came back to life, and she started to walk again on her walker. And I guess I I realized that she was having dementia because she was repeating the same things over and over and over again, asking the same question, like my older son's in Philadelphia in medical school, and she'll ask, I'll tell her, and she'll say, where's Jeremy? Where's Jeremy? And I'll say it again, and she'll, two seconds later, she'll, she'll ask the same question. So she's doing that a lot now. She can't express herself that well anymore. I can see that she's trying and she'll want to speak more sometimes, but she just can't get the words out, or she can't, she can't get it from her mind to her mouth. Mm-hmm. It can be a bit frustrating because there are times where I really want to tell her what's going on with me, and she doesn't get it, or she'll funny because I don't know if she's getting it or she isn't or she's being kind of funny cruel like she used to be (laughs) but I really don't feel like she gets it like she really can understand anything I'm saying um, about my life even though I know she cares about me and I've always known that she really really cares about me And then there's a part of me that feels like it doesn't really matter. I've grieved not having, um, you know, it sounds so infantile, but not having like a real mom for a long time. And I am her mom now. 
I am kind of like her mom. And so I'm loving her unconditionally now like she's my child. So, and she has no one but me. And it's easy for me to love her. She is like a child. And so I don't have those expectations of having a mother-daughter relationship with her anymore. And I haven't for a very long time. And I think I'm grateful that she makes it so easy for me to just sit there and be with her. You know, it's remarkable because if she gets upset with me now and yells at me, I'm completely surprised by it. But that's how she was a lot when I was growing up. But now she really doesn't complain. She doesn't say she wants to die. She doesn't get angry anymore. She's happy to see me. She's grateful that I come. It's completely and utterly different. Her character has changed. And it allows me, her protectors that have been so in place when I was growing up have relaxed. And she's able to just kind of be peaceful most of the time and really sweet. I used to pray that before she died, she would find some kind of gratitude in her life. And I think it's happened, but it's coupled with the fact that she's getting, you know, further and further away in certain ways. So there's sort of bittersweet quality to it, it sounds like, that way. Yeah. So you're describing something kind of amazing, that this real transformation of her whole character. And do you feel like maybe the dementia has actually helped her forget some of the memories that were haunting her in a way that's freed her? Well, I think that this whole battle cry that survivors have, as you know, and is never forget and live to tell the story so it won't happen again. And if you can't keep anything in your mind for a long time, she can't hold on to that anymore. So I think that's some of it. She still shows her tattoo to a lot of people now. She she shows it more now than she ever has. And she'll show it when she's in the hospital and she'll show it to doctors and orderlies and she'll say, do you know what this is? But now she says that she just ran away from the Germans and that's that's it. She ran away from the Germans and that's all she says. A few days ago, she showed me the tattoo and I said to her, you know, you were in Auschwitz. And she said, no, I wasn't. I wasn't in Auschwitz. But see, I don't trust that that didn't happen just that day, and it'll come back to her again. I don't know what stage she's in. But I do think that because she can't hold on to a thought, she can't hold on to the thoughts of having been 
that traumatized and it's making her a lot happier or more peaceful. And I can imagine for you there's such relief in that. Yes, yes. I have a hard time sometimes going there and leaving her because she seems so pure and I think that she always was and it's gonna kinda gonna bring up some um emotions for me. But it was so hard for me to see her innocence because there was so much anger and frustration and uh, blaming of my mostly my dad, which was very painful for me because I was very close to my dad. And then to see her now in this really kind of innocent, um, complaining very, very little, now hardly complaining at all, which she did all the time, I just connect to that. You know, that she was always that way, but because of her history, she wasn't really able to let that happen for herself. It was too scary to love. I see that now. And what I'm hearing, Mariska, is almost the grief of seeing her beauty, seeing that her lovableness now and realizing it was always there. Right. We're so covered over. Right. I'm so glad you can see it. You get to see it. Me too. And that yeah. she, she gets to experience you seeing her that way. Well, I just, you know, I think just being with her and stroking her hair and... um being able to get close to her in a way that I couldn't before and not wanting or needing or expecting anything from her. I think she feels that. She knows that I love her and I can be with her in a way that I couldn't before. And that must be soothing to her, too. I'm struck that you use the word innocence, you know, that you see her innocence and that she was so little when she was taken into the camps at 13 and um, that as a child she she was of course so innocent but she was never treated that way mm-hmm. and I there's just feel something so redemptive in you seeing her maybe as that innocent girl that she always was but she was robbed of it so early yes and it's in some strange way in seeing that innocence in her it's like You're giving her something that was taken from her. Yes, I'm giving it back. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to. Yes, right. I mean, one can never undo what has happened, but nonetheless, it feels so precious what you can see in her now. Mariska, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. I've so uh, appreciated hearing your story. It's really touched me very much. Thank you for having me, Anne. This is WMPG. I've been talking to psychotherapist Marushka Glisson about how her relationship with her mother has actually improved through the course of her mother's dementia. 
if you have a story about dementia and a story about how your relationship with your parent may actually have improved through caregiving that you'd like to tell, perhaps even in the hopes of helping others, please email me at dranne at safespaceradio.com. That's D-R-A-N-N-E at safespaceradio.com. Also, if you got to hear only part of this interview and you'd like to hear the rest or if you'd like to send it to a friend, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com and you can listen to the podcast there and all the other podcasts of the shows. You can also like us on Facebook. You can download us from iTunes and you can subscribe to get a weekly email with the link to that week's show. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, and Maurice Lennon for the music. Coming up next is Speak Freely. <laughs>